0: This is Masters in Business with Barry Ritholtz on Bloomberg Radio. This
1: week on the podcast, I have a special guest. His name is David Enrich, and he is a reporter for The New York Times. But more importantly, he is the author of The Spider Network, the wild story of a math genius, a gang of backstabbing bankers, and one of the greatest scams in financial history, It is all about LIBOR and how that scandal, which is not even a decade old, unfolded. Uh, We are talking about not just millions of dollars, not just billions of dollars, but hundreds of trillions of dollars that were manipulated in different directions for people to capture some trading profits. And when you stop and think about all the assets— that trade based on LIBOR, uh, if you have a a variable mortgage or a car loan or credit card loans or student loans, you may have been paying more for those interest payments due to some of these manipulations by various uh, bankers. Arguably, occasionally you were paying less because they manipulated it in the other direction. Um, the book is really quite fascinating. I'm not finished with it yet. I'm working my way through it. But it really reads like, uh, you know, an Ian Fleming novel. It's it's a spy tale. There are some fascinating characters in it. Uh, it really is a great narrative. And David does a wonderful job bringing some really arcane uh, minutiae to life in a way that's fascinating and understandable. Uh I think that if you're remotely interested in the world of fixed income or borrowing or derivatives, this is a must read and it's going to enter the pantheon of great financial narratives. So with no further ado, here is my conversation with David Enrich.
0: This is Masters in Business with Barry Ritholtz on Bloomberg Radio.
1: My guest today is David Enrich. He is a New York Times reporter and editor uh, since the summer of 2017. Prior to that, he worked for the Wall Street Journal for a decade writing about banking and finance in the United States. Uh, He has won numerous journalism awards, including the Overseas Press Club Award for his coverage of the European debt crisis, the George Polk Award for coverage on insider trading, He won two Society of American Business Editors and Writers Awards. David was part of two teams of journal reporters who were finalists for Pulitzer Prizes in both 2009 and 2011. He won the prestigious Gerald Loeb Award for feature writing for his coverage on The Unraveling of Tom Hayes, the expose about the LIBOR scandal. That eventually led to him writing a book on it titled... The Spider Network, How a Math Genius and a Gang of Scheming Bankers Pulled Off One of the Greatest Scams in History. David Enrich, welcome to Bloomberg. Thank you. I'm fascinated by the LIBOR scandal. Folks like you and I who cover this are pretty familiar with some of the minutia and and details about LIBOR. But for the layperson listening to this, what exactly is LIBOR and why is it so important?
2: It's an acronym. It stands for the London Interbank Offered Rate. And it is the world's most important number. Or at the least world's
1: the most, most important number. That, I, that, that's I, quite a claim. It is. Explain why it's it's such an important number. What What is it used
2: for? It sets interest rates on all sorts of debt all over the world. So if you have an adjustable rate mortgage, the interest rate is based on LIBOR. If you have a credit card, a student loan, an auto loan, it's likely based on LIBOR. If you are a big company and are issuing debt, the interest rate might be based on LIBOR. Same if you're a town or a city. There are trillions and trillions of dollars of this stuff. Trillions, trillions, and the biggest part is not the just normal debt. It's derivatives that are that you know originally companies or investors were using them to protect themselves to hedge the uh, against possible fluctuations in interest rates. And later, as you know, often happens in the financial world, they became a playground for speculators and traders. So I learned a lot of
1: different things from the book, one of which was that essentially decades ago, a Greek banker was trying to arrange an $80 million loan for the Shah of Iran, and the syndication process led to a question, how are we going to set rates And that effectively is the origin of LIBOR. Is is that right?
2: Yeah, that is right. And this is—I really like history, and so researching this was just fascinating for me. And they're uh, originally, you know, if you think about how does an interest rate come into being, when a bank offers a loan to someone, how do they determine what they're going to pay? And the the general rule of thumb was that they are going to base the interest rate they're uh, putting on a loan based on how much it costs the bank to borrow money. So and, it's
1: it's the borrowing rate plus some margin, right. which becomes a profit.
2: Yeah, exactly. And so obviously the banks need to have a profit. And so they eventually, normally that would be simple if it's just one bank making a loan. But the history of this is that at the kind of dawn of the era where loans, big loans were being syndicated, you had a big group of banks getting together to team up on to make big loans. And in this case, it was a loan, an $80 million loan to the Shah of Iran at the time. And it... Uh, how do you, if different banks have different funding costs, how do you determine the interest rate? And so the innovation here was that you can have, you can come up with an average, basically, and you can look at how much does it, if you've got 10 banks on it, you take the, their average funding cost, and that can be the interest rate plus a little bit. And the challenge, though, is that funding costs change. And what you're, if you're making a 20-year loan, your funding costs at year one could be very different from your funding costs at year 10 or 20. And that is a very scary thing for the banks because you know if their funding costs go up you could st- be locked into a loan that is deeply unprofitable for the bank and so the innovation here was that they would have a mechanism where the interest rate would fluctuate over time based on the bank's funding costs
1: so so given those kind of murky origins the a, a, a Greek bankers syndicated loan to the Shah of Iran How did this become the most important number in the world? How did this become so widely accepted everywhere?
2: Yeah, so in the mid-1980s, the British Bankers Association, which was a trade organization, basically a lobbying group. BBA. Yeah, the BBA, for uh, not only the big British banks, but for many of the biggest banks in the world that had set up shop in London. They got together with the Bank of England, the central bank there, and they decided the the use of derivatives was really booming, and they figured they needed a standardized way. Instead of every time there's a loan or any type of financial contract, cobbling together this kind of ad hoc system for determining interest rates they figured it would be a much better way to standardize or much better idea to standardize this and so LIBOR came into existence as something that was every day around lunchtime in london a group of the world's biggest banks would estimate how much it costs them to borrow money from each other and you know you could do it in different currencies so in pound sterling and dollars and euros and japanese yen and you can do it over a different time period so You know, it's going to cost a bank a different amount to borrow money for one day or a week or a month or a year, and the longer the duration of that loan, the higher the interest rate generally. And you can every day, so every day at lunchtime, a group of the world's biggest banks gets together, someone comes up with an estimate for theoretically how much it would cost them to borrow money in a specific currency over a specific time period, all those numbers get smooshed together, the high estimates and the low estimates get booted out, and the rest are averaged, and presto, you've got LIBOR. That, that's quite fascinating.
1: You raised a couple of really interesting points I have to follow up on. The first is, why lunchtime? Almost everything else is set at the close of business during the end of the day. Why the middle of the banking day, the trading day, would you want to set uh, interest rates? What What is that about? Because
2: this was, this was developed in a pre-computer era. It was the mid-1980s, and to determine how much a bank... It cost a bank to borrow money. You needed to check with various parts of the bank. So someone, this is usually a pretty low-level person, kind of in the bowels of the bank, and he would come in in the morning and start making phone calls to different parts of the bank to try and assess how much it cost them to borrow money. And remember, this isn't one phone call because this is most of these banks are global at this point, Mm -hmm. and they have operations all over the world and you know so he has, this guy has to call the treasury desk in Tokyo or Singapore or in New York it's and, actually a full-time job determining libor well it, like. it was kind of a half-time job okay. i would say and it was again this is someone who is usually a clerk an entry level job an aspiring trader So the the job. most
1: important number to quote you yep. in the world a bunch of lowly clerks are running around or or sitting at their desks in London making calls everywhere. Yeah, and, and this, that's how this number gets assembled. Yeah,
2: that. Well, and the joke is that and the reason I wrote a book on this and there's been so much media coverage on this is because it was just they weren't they. It got to the point where they weren't even really making calls. This became a number that was being pulled more or less out of thin air Uh by bankers at a low level. And why were they pulling it out of thin air? They were doing it because their traders asked them to. Because the traders had, especially by the 1990s and early aughts, had huge amounts of money that they were wagering on whether LIBOR was going to go up or down by very tiny increments. And we're talking
1: about... Positions that are trillions of notational value, yep. trillions, uh, hundreds of trillions, of hundreds notations. of trillions.
2: Uh, these, uh, this is kind of like asking how hot is the sun, right? The <laughs> the the actual temperature in degrees Fahrenheit or Celsius doesn't make any difference. It's, right, it's a number so astronomically <laughs> right. large, it it, it literally loses
1: astronomical. So so all of this raises the obvious question. On the one hand, the banks are collectively setting the number. On the other hand, they're totally interested parties. Who have enormous amounts of, of capital riding on the yep.
2: outcome of those numbers?
1: Uh, how could that ever possibly go wrong?
2: How could there be a conflict of interest in the banking industry? Unbelievable. Yeah, I mean, I've it's it's funny because I've been covering this at this point for eight years, I would say, and it's that is such a fundamental question, and it's true. It's such a deeply embedded conflict of interest that is it's just completely inappropriate. And, so,
1: so who who is to blame for that conflict? was it just happenstance the way it developed yeah. and where were the regulators when yeah you guys deal with hundreds of trillions of dollars bet on the direction of libor set the rate yourselves that's fine with us
2: yeah I and mean, this is like so many other problems in the financial arena this is something that had fairly benign origin and this is something that was it really was meant to be to simplify and increase the efficiency of a very complicated and cumbersome lending process and Gradually, over a period of a decade or two, this rate, first of all, became embedded in hundreds of billions of dollars worth of American mortgages. And Mm -hmm. it it didn't start out that way. Hundreds of billions. Yeah. Yeah, Because
1: way back in the day, it was either Fed funds
2: rate or some other U.S.-based
1: number. When did LIBOR infiltrate
2: U.S. er mortgages? the, The early 90s. And that was partly a product of... Libor at the time was viewed as a very reliable way for banks sure. to estimate their funding costs, and it, it was. And and again, that's something that, in theory, if it works properly, is very good for everyone. It's good mm-hmm. for the banks. It's also good for the consumers because it's, it's an efficient way. It, it relieves the banks of any anxiety they might have that if they price a loan at a low interest rate, that they're going to get burned a year or five years later. This allows them to. It relieves them of all of that anxiety, and that's that allows them theoretically to loan money at a lower interest rate. And
1: and those loans typically look like LIBOR plus 2%, right, LIBOR exactly. plus 3%. So that's their markup. That's the the cost of the loan to the borrower, it's the profit theoretically to the bank. But it seems kind of funny that they get to set what is. Yeah, it
2: does seem kind of funny. Did anybody
1: question that arrangement? Originally,
2: not really. And originally this was seen as – and keep in mind that the alternative to this is that just banks are arbitrarily setting loans. It's not something that is – it's not like this is replacing a heavily regulated – kind of government-imposed rate. Previously, is, it was just
1: market forces. You negotiate right. the best you can for the loan, and that's it, as opposed to right. LIBOR+. plus. Well,
2: or maybe it was the Fed funds rate or something mm-hmm. like that that was... But then again, since that is going to change less frequently than LIBOR would, you then the banks were then adding an additional buffer. So instead of maybe LIBOR plus two per point, it would be Fed funds plus three points. So and, you, it made so, the loans more expensive. Yeah, exactly. And so this is something... The the big problem though wasn't the introduction of LIBOR into the mortgage market. It was the introduction of LIBOR into the derivatives market. And that happened in the mid-90s. And that was something that at the time the Commodity Futures Trading Commission had to approve this because it was the Chicago Mercantile Exchange that mm-hmm. was looking to kind of have LIBOR embedded as a mechanism in interest rate swaps. And that was it was seen as a way to make swap the swaps market much more accessible and much more efficient and much more liquid. But at the time, a number of traders warned the CFTC that if you do this, you are inviting disaster because traders at the big banks know how LIBOR works. Just, it's completely unregulated by central banks or by financial regulators. And they it's very easy. If you give banks a huge profit incentive to manipulate something, guess what? They're going to manipulate it. So, so let's stay on that point. In the book, you discuss Gary Gensler. You just mentioned...
1: The Commodity Futures Training Commission. Gensler is the person who uh, pretty much defanged the the CFTC. And then he ends up running it as the LIBOR scandal is unfolding. And for reasons I still don't understand, falsely takes claim for initiating an investigation into LIBOR. It actually predated his tenure
2: by a year. Explain this mania, because this is crazy. Also, well, this is the pen, the regulatory pendulum has swung so wildly, and I think it's a common misconception right now in twenty eighteen to look at this as a product of Democrats versus Republicans, and or Democrat or Barack Obama versus Donald Trump, and that's just not what it is. I mean, it this predates that. For well, and this started years. in the Clinton administration. The Clinton administration oversaw one of the great regulatory rollbacks in the of the twentieth century, and it was Bob Rubin. And Gary Gensler, who are leading that charge. They well,
1: let me let me push back a little bit. Okay. So so you have um, a number of significant Republicans in the Senate pushing pushing for this. Um, I'm drawing a blank on somebody's name right now. I mean, now. Phil Graham is one oh, there example. the Right. So Phil Graham is really the ringleader of all this. Uh, Ruben. So so behind Graham, we basically overturn uh, under Clinton and. Robert Rubin and Larry Summers. I'm not going to disagree with you. They kind of went along, get went along to get along. We we overturned Glass Steagall. We passed the Commodity Futures Modernization Act, which basically said, yeah, derivatives, free for all. And we basically took the Commodity Futures Trading Commission and turned it into a toothless tiger. Clinton signed all these things. Some of these passed. Uh, the House, like 93 to 1. Right. No, it was, the Senate, 93 to the, 1.
2: There was a consensus in both parties at the time that the key, one of the keys to economic growth and to uh, kind of economic growth spreading globally and the U.S. maintaining its competitive advantage when it came to financial services was to embrace a really aggressive, laissez faire attitude toward all walks of financial life. And Look, it's clearly not only the Clinton administration. They, but you know, the the administration empowered any given year wields a tremendous amount of clout on these things. And if if Bob Rubin, a guy who is coming from the upper echelons of Goldman Sachs, wasn't uh, a cheerleader of this, it wouldn't have happened. And the and Gary Gensler as well, another Goldman Sachs guy. So there's D-
1: didn't Rubin end up? Uh, he ended up uh, at city, city right? so
2: he he oversaw the repeal of. Um, Glass Steagall, which paved the way for the creation of the modern Citigroup. which and was Travelers and Travelers Citibank. and Citigroup, and it then, lo and behold, after leaving, immediately gets hired on a very lucrative contract to do not a whole lot at Citigroup. Uh, so, in any case, the Gensler at the Gensler in the Treasury Department in the Clinton administration was one of the proponents of essentially neutering the CFTC, not having it be a powerful force for the regulation of derivatives. He then in the Obama era is eager to, he sees the, the the winds shifting. We've just had the financial crisis. He's eager for a senior administration position. And the opposition to him on Capitol Hill was intense because he was so deeply embedded with the Reuben wing of the Democratic Party. And he underwent A remarkable makeover and Bernie Sanders was one guy on the on the hill who had been a vigorous opponent of Gensler Mm -hmm. getting any powerful position and Gensler just pulled this remarkable about-face and to his credit unlike most politicians he admitted that he had been catastrophically wrong in the Clinton administration in the Clinton era and he had just gotten it wrong he and he said he had learned a lesson and and was embracing very enthusiastically this pro-regulation pro-government view of the financial world and so he came into the CFTC which at the time was this kind of scrappy underfunded backwater of an agency in Washington and did everything he could to he, he wanted scalps he wanted to he wanted to see the CFTC developing a reputation for being one of the uh, toughest scariest gunslingers on Wall Street and what became this investigation into LIBOR, that became the perfect vehicle for him.
1: What What's so astonishing is a lot of the people who set up the financial crisis uh, during the Clinton administration— and let's hold the Republicans aside, guys like yep. Phil Graham— but when you look at the Democrats, you have, you have Lawrence Summers eventually goes on to get uh, chairman of the CEA for Obama— Tim Geithner, who was New York Fed chief, eventually becomes Treasury Secretary. Gensler gets appointed to the agency that he helped to dismantle. It's really pretty astonishing. If you look at the fields of of aviation or medicine, when a plane crashes or there's a surgical problem, you don't send the same pilot back to tell you what went wrong. You don't send the same surgeon to do a postmortem. Someone else with fresh eyes comes in. That is not what we saw take place during the financial crisis
2: it no it's totally true we had a lot of the same old characters coming in and a lot of them geithner is an exception to this i think but a lot of them hailed from wall street and those were these are the same guys who had not only not stopped the financial crisis but in a number of cases either worsened it or profited from it mm-hmm. and take your pick i don't know which of those is worse and uh again in fairness to people like Summers and Gensler, I think there is a human capacity to learn from one's mistakes, and arguably the experience of having screwed up royally and watching the financial world burn as a result in part of your mistakes is probably a pretty sobering educational moment. Uh, and look, the, everyone got it wrong. It's not just these guys, right? The media got it wrong. Not everybody got it wrong. Lots of people... A lot of people concerned. got it wrong.
1: Uh, you know, there were plenty of people who were... Complaining about it and warning about it, I just I've always found it fascinating that wait there aren't people who weren't major contributors to the crisis to take the role of CEA chair or Treasury Secretary. Uh, I've always learned when you really screw up, hey, you know you're not going to get that promotion. Apparently, D.C. and Wall Street that that doesn't seem to be. Yeah, there. I
2: mean one of the revelations to me in writing this book is that. Uh, most of the things on Wall Street and in the financial world, and I think in politics too, they, it boils down to incentives. And Of course. People's, people are actually pretty rational actors if you can figure out what's motivating them to do what they're doing. And so- you see this anywhere from kind of a low level trader starting out on Wall Street to someone at the upper echelons of a bank like Gary Gensler or Bob Rubin, or, or if you put them in government service, the same thing. So if they, they're responding to the incentives, whether it's compensation incentives Mm -hmm. or feedback or just approval ratings or things like that. And they, they have a, everyone incentives matter. And they explain that we see, and I think that's why, to me, when the next crisis inevitably happens and the next scandal inevitably erupts, it, it, it will. It's a question of when and where. But when it does, I think we're going to look back and see that a lot of the lessons we should have learned from the financial crisis in terms of shaping incentives in a way to encourage sober, careful, prudent behavior were not really heated. We instead just imposed, erected all these new regulations that are just designed for the sake of regulation, they're not actually looking very closely at what motivates people to behave the way that they do. So let's talk a little bit about
1: Tom Hayes, the man in the middle of this. Uh, You actually won a Loeb Award for your coverage of the unraveling of Tom Hayes. Who was Tom Hayes, and how did he find himself in the middle of the LIBOR scandal?
2: So Tom Hayes is a mildly autistic mathematician. He uh, was a trader at some of the world's biggest banks. He was a guy who, like most mathematicians who are mildly autistic and get into banking, was very good at creating models, detecting patterns, things like that. Not very good- Not just
1: very good at detecting patterns. People described him as
2: just- He was a genius. Right, just brilliant at this. He was a genius. And he was one of the best traders that a lot of his colleagues had ever seen. He also was someone who was very well-trained- to do what traders do best, especially in a decade ago, which was to look for tiny little inefficiencies and find ways to exploit them. And that could mean having a faster trading system. It could mean having better intelligence. It could mean having stupider clients. <laughs> it could mean finding ways to manipulate something that you are betting on the outcome of. And so, so let's talk about stupider
1: clients for a second, because this comes up in the book. Uh, with There's a whole list of characters, and there are really some very co- colorful characters. What is the relationship of the brokers who are working with the traders, and how do people identify smarter and dumber clients?
2: Yeah, so the brokers serve this role as the great middlemen in the banking industry. And when two traders, when a trader, a trader at bank A and a trader at bank B, both want to do a transaction, they're often not talking to each other. They're talking to a broker who's in the middle and realizes that trader bank A wants to buy something and trader bank B is looking to sell the same thing. And so they'll serve as the middleman for that service. They take a cut of the. The value of the transaction, and that's fine. The brokers serve another role, though, which is uh, information brokers, essentially, and they peddle gossip. And they are paid in large part to develop relationships with these traders. And the way they do that, I love this thing. It, it's that they they have there's a ratio of how or a percentage of the revenue that each trader generates. You are supposed to, as a broker, recycle that. Back to the trader. Define define recycle
1: Inter- in real life. What does it look like? Entertainment, it's
2: called. Right. Uh, which is- Just know.
1: a giant T&E budget. Yeah. Drinks, food, strip clubs, and yeah. worse.
2: And, and if you've got some of these traders who are generating uh, millions and millions of dollars a year in brokerage fees, spending 10% of that on steak dinners and nice drinks is very hard. But it's not just
1: steak dinners and nice drinks you you tell some stories this is g-rated but you tell some stories in the book these guys are animals
2: no they get creative they get very creative about ways to spend hundreds of thousands of dollars a, a year on a particular person and so what does that mean that means drugs it means women it means trips to various places it means just all sorts of ludicrous misbehavior and this is something that again is The book singles out a number of individuals for being involved in this, but this is widespread industry practice at the time. And Hayes, Tom Hayes was not a guy who liked going to strip clubs. He was not a big drinker. His idea of a fun night out was uh, going to KFC, getting a bucket of fried chicken, sitting at home, eating it while watching Seinfeld reruns. And so this is not a guy who you can easily – he's a huge trader – But it was very hard, and the brokers were dying to do business with him because of the huge volumes he was doing. But this is not someone who is very easy to spend your 10% of the commissions on. And so the brokers found another way to reward him, which was that Tom Hayes was making huge, huge bets on the direction of interest rates which meant that he had a huge huge stake in the direction of libor every day mm-hmm. and tom hayes on a given day would have millions and millions of dollars riding on whether libor went up or down by a basis point which is a, a, tick. a, a one hundredth of a percentage point right. so a tiny little move that no one would ever notice tom hayes not only would notice but care deeply about libor moving in these tiny little increments And so that's where the brokers came in for Tom Hayes. He realized, and the brokers realized, that LIBOR is set not Tom Hayes at this time worked at UBS, the big Swiss bank. Not
1: set by the market, but it's set by the banks themselves.
2: Tom Hayes works at one bank, and so Tom Hayes, as was standard industry practice at the time, the traders who were making wagers based on the direction of interest rates would call up the little clerk in in the bowels of the bank and say, hey, mate I need LIBOR up today. Can you please move UBS's submission up by as much as you can, or move it down by as much as you can? Depending, it was that. It was that it was naked. S- it was that raw. It was that. Yeah, it was very explicit. People were very open about it. They were encouraged to do it. This was under the under the umbrella at the time of banks trying to improve the coordination of different parts of the bank, working together, all pulling in the same direction. And and, and
1: what role does the brokers play so the,
2: with these clerks? So the brokers' the brokers' role is that they... Tom Hayes can tell the guy at UBS, his colleague, to move LIBOR up or down. What Tom Hayes can't do quite as easily is call Citigroup or J.P. Morgan or Royal Bank of Scotland. The other 10 banks. The other 10 banks. And he so doesn't know these guys, and why would they listen to him anyway? Right. But he can call in a favor with the brokers. And so that he had brokers at ICAP which is the biggest, and some other firms as well, just every single day routinely going out into the market and telling all of their contacts and all these other banks, move LIBOR up or down. And it was basically to benefit Tom Hayes's trading positions and the trading positions of Tom Hayes' colleagues.
1: Was this unique to Hayes and, and UBS or was this standard practice? Well,
2: the, it was standard practice to be manipulating LIBOR. Hayes was a really clever guy and a really relentless guy and took this to a new level. So the introduction of the brokers was something that Hayes pioneered, and that was really his innovation. That was the way that he got an edge. And everyone always talked about getting an edge on the trading floor, and Hayes had found one. You were in London in
1: the mid-2000s. How did you find your way to London? How, How does a Wall Street Journal reporter based in New York end up in London?
2: Uh, It was actually the late 2000s, and the financial crisis here in the U.S. had ended. Uh, Banks were going back to normal, more or less boring stuff, but a Mm -hmm. financial crisis was just dawning in Europe. I'd never lived overseas and was eager for an adventure, and London seemed like an adventure. So, So I So, you're late 20s at
1: this point. It's a
2: decade ago. I think I was
1: early 30s. Early 30s. So now you're in London for a couple of years. You're covering finance. You're covering the banks. Middle of the night, you get a text from a, a phone that you don't recognize the number of, comes in. Tell us about that.
2: Yeah, so I was covering, uh, I had been covering the LIBOR, or what was now known as the LIBOR scandal, and governments had investigated uh, all of these banks, and it, uh, in a couple of cases, including with UBS, which was Tom Hayes' former employer, had reached these huge settlements where the banks had to pay hundreds of millions, if not billions, of dollars in penalties and admitted that they had been part of this global scheme to manipulate interest rates.
1: How, how many banks uh, wrote how much money in? Well, settlements?
2: ultimately, it was more than a dozen banks and probably five or six or seven or eight or nine or ten billion dollars in penalties. Lot. So huge,
1: but, widespread, yeah. common. But this is managed. this this is
2: in twenty thirteen at, at the very end of twenty twelve. Uh, for the first time, a guy was actually a guy an individual a person was held accountable for this and that guy was tom hayes he was arrested in the uk and he was criminally charged here in the u.s US. Uh, i remember this he was the first person to be charged and my boss at the time uh a guy named bruce orwell who's a great editor at the wall street journal uh wanted me to write a profile of tom hayes and of course that seemed like a thankless task hayes had been you know he'd been criminally charged this guy's not going to talk right and so after much toing and froing i agreed to do this and found uh, a woman who was his former business school classmate and got her to talk to me and it started painting this picture nothing was known about tom hayes at this point he other than that he was a very successful trader who had said some really stupid uh seemingly damning stuff in mm-hmm. instant messages and this woman, though, painted a much more interesting, nuanced picture of Tom as someone who was mildly autistic. He was a nerd. He was just doing what everyone else was doing, it seemed like. Right. Uh, and I convinced her to pass on my phone number to Tom Hayes. And she said, of course, there's no way he's going to call you. There's His lawyers won't let him, blah, blah, blah. And I was sitting at home that night uh, on the sofa watching TV with my wife, and I got a text message from an unknown number and it said, this goes much, much higher than me. Not even the Justice Department knows the full story. And it was Tom Hayes, and I could not believe it. He agreed then to meet me the next day. Uh, he said, I'll meet you if I can trust you. And I said, of course you can trust me. I'm a journalist. And <laughs> and uh, he told me he'd be standing in Victoria Station, which is a big, busy train station right. in London, outside the Burger King, wearing a brown leather jacket. And of course, no one even knows what this guy looks like at this point. And... Huh. I, as you can imagine, was pretty excited about that. I kind of pictured myself as Bob Woodward all of a right. sudden. Uh, and unfortunately, he canceled the next morning because his wife had found his phone and realized he was off to meet a journalist and his wife is a lawyer and <laughs> I decided that was not a wise thing to do. But uh, that was the start of what became a years-long relationship I had with Tom Hayes that in, uh, initially started over text messages, mm-hmm. but ultimately I and I was spending what seemed like the majority of my waking hours either with him or on the phone with him and eventually his wife as well and they just let me inside their life for a pretty substantial period of time from early 2013 until mid-2015 when tom hayes eventually went on trial for manipulating libor and so that was the basis for this Wall Street journal series the unraveling of tom hayes is that i watched this guy who had become kind of this unlikely public face of financial crime uh, and I watched him, his life disintegrate. It was fascinating and kind of upsetting.
1: So Hayes eventually loses the case, gets, what was it, a 14-year sentence, yep, something 14 like that? 14 years. So there's a section in the book. It's jaw-dropping. His former bosses, his associates, all the traders he worked with, all the brokers he worked with, nobody else gets into trouble. Yep. How is that? Not only do they not get into trouble, they're all doing fine. They're all still working in the industry. They're all still making millions of dollars. How did this one- Guy become the
2: full guy,
1: and everybody else skates yep. away scot-free. I
2: mean, there are two basic reasons, two literal reasons to that. One is that Hayes was stupid and naive, and he did everything in writing. So there's this rich trove of documentary evidence that showed Hayes in text messages or chat rooms or sometimes on recorded phone lines saying, please move LIBOR up for me. I have a lot of money riding on this. <laughs> over and over and over again, thousands of times. So there's over no again. way to avoid that. Well, I mean, the second reason is that prosecutors and regulators are a little bit lazy. They wanted to nail some people, but, you know, they don't really want to take risks. They want to go after the sure thing. And the sure thing in this case was Tom Hayes. This is an I think, probably an unlosable case for them. And they went after him. And what's mystifying to me is what happened next, which is that they did... They criminally charged a small handful of other people, of his confederates, all of whom got acquitted. But they really didn't go after anyone higher up. And, you know, this is mystifying and a little bit frustrating to me because there is as much evidence as there is against Tom Hayes there's also a lot of evidence that shows Hayes's bosses and his boss's bosses and his boss's bosses bosses not only knowing about and condoning what he was doing at the time but in some cases participating alongside him and were they doing it as extensively and as aggressively as Hayes and as blatantly as Hayes absolutely not but these are people who should have known better and it, the regulators and prosecutors, I think most of these are smart, ambitious people, and they should recognize how the actions that they take, going after certain people in the industry, those are have the potential to be very powerful deterrent messages. And it's just a huge missed opportunity. They're, they, they could have, I think, they could have brought a lot more cases than they did.
1: So Jesse Isinger's book, which I can't say the title on of on the air, the Chicken Blank Club, talks about the Comey. That phrase comes yep. from the Comey speech about the prosecutors who are chickens, yeah. lazy, and only take easy cases. I, but I, it didn't sound like a lot... Of, in your book, the, the picture you paint, it doesn't sound like these are all that different. Maybe the Hayes case was a laydown, but there seemed like a huge paper trail for another dozen people, maybe another 50 people.
2: Yeah, there are a lot of people who, have, who are caught up in this, and they're... To me, first of all, I love Jesse Isinger's book, Everyone Should Read It. I think it's a perfect complement to the Spider Network in the sense that the Spider Network show is one of these cases where there was all this evidence and most of it just didn't get used. And Jesse's book does a really good job of explaining some of the dynamics inside the Justice Department for why prosecutors are sometimes kind of cowardly. Mm-hmm. And it, um, in this case, I, mean, I think part of the issue is that these are complicated cases. It takes a lot to bring a case and there, but there is enormous resistance in the f- financial world, and a lot of these prosecutors are they really don't want to lose. And th- to me, the power that the prosecutors have here is the simple act of staging a perp walk, of going and arresting a senior executive at a bank or another big or company. a dozen. Yeah, that would have, and parading them in front of the TV cameras and making them go into court and face a jury of their peers, and have the fear of god put in them that they might not lose some money or might lose some reputation or might lose their job but might lose their freedom that's scary and if that prospect of the possibility of actually going to jail was hanging over people's heads i think that would do a lot to change behavior and we talked earlier about incentives and how people respond mm-hmm. to the incentives they're given if both one of positive the, and negative bo- exactly both positive and negative so money is a positive incentive but prospect of serious life-changing personal consequences is another incentive <laughs> to to say the least. Uh, let me let me
1: sum up this conversation with a quote from the book, and I want you to to respond to it. There is a tension between, quote, long-term, effective functioning of the financial markets on one hand, I'm now paraphrasing you, uh, and on the other hand, Optimizing the current value of your securities portfolio. How do you uh, square that circle? How do you resolve the tension between those two clearly potentially conflicting motivations? So between just long term and short term? Well, it's it's long term functioning of the financial markets. You know, during the the subprime crisis, there were these bonuses that people called. I'll be gone, you'll be gone bonuses. That by the time it blew up, hey, we'll be three jobs away. It seemed that the short term totally trumped the long term. But that's not what I'm asking you about here. This is the actual functioning of the finance markets. So we don't have a situation where the credit markets just freeze. How can that inherent tension between functioning markets and
2: uh optimizing portfolios can that be resolved uh, probably not and it, the <laughs> one of the things i found interesting recently though is that there are a lot of banks out there these days banks used to be the model that was in vogue was to be this financial supermarket and that included you know you have a retail bank a credit card business a mortgage business a wealth management business but most of all the big revenue driver were these investment banks that a lot of it not just prop trading although that was part of it it was but there was a huge business that sprung up around uh, serving, or making trades uh, in the wake of, or around, the business of servicing big clients and big, Mm -hmm. big institutions. And one of the things I found interesting recently that that turned into a very risky business, by the way, because, you know, that a lot of the there's a tremendous amount of volatility in the markets. And yes, you can make huge profits, but you can also make huge losses when the markets turn if you don't handle it perfectly. And one of the things I found very interesting now is that if you look at the banks that investors think are the best deals, Those are not banks that bear any resemblance to what was in vogue 10 years ago. You're looking at banks, and the UK has some really interesting examples of these banks like Lloyds and Royal Bank of Scotland that are these just, they're as boring as can be. They're just banks that do what banks used to do in the 1950s, which is they take deposits, they make loans. And it's that simple. And it turns out that if you do that properly, in an economy that's pretty strong, that's an enormously profitable business. And it's safe, and it's uh, conservative, and it also is valuable to not just the the shareholders and the executives, but to an economy as a whole. And I think, to me, this is gonna sound old-fashioned, and I think a lot of people in the banking industry probably will view this as naive and just a little too quaint for their taste, but looking at things through the prism of, is there some value? Social, economic value to what you're doing, to me, that would have, that's a pretty good filter for activity that is not really good for shareholders either. And the the huge risks the banks are accustomed to taking, those turn out badly way too often.
1: So, how did RBS? Run into trouble because they they are in deep uh, trouble. Well, these RBS days. is
2: actually doing pretty well right now. Mm-hmm. Is the reality? I and mean, they, they I mean, they were the world's worst bank for I mean. Up until a couple years ago, and they managed. They had been on this acquisition spree. They were every single crisis there was. RBS stepped right in there. It. it was right in the middle every of every single one. And there are a lot of banks that fit that mold. Right. UBS is another good example. Citigroup, Group, Deutsche Bank, on City, and on. They're uh, unbelievable. All, all of these banks, and and and, and Bank of America, Wells Fargo. I mean, we can. It's hard to <laughs> name banks that haven't made these catastrophic mistakes.
1: Chase J.P. Morgan is really the the exception.
2: Yeah, and Goldman too, to a certain extent yeah. i think um they've certainly had their blunders but they if they're not those are banks that have been much more conservative and i think better managed morgan
1: stanley arguably sidestepped
2: yep. much of the yep. debacle
1: we have been speaking to david enrich about the spider network if you enjoy this conversation be sure and check out our podcast extras where we keep the tapes rolling and continue discussing all things libor We love your comments, feedback, and suggestions. Write to us at mibpodcast at bloomberg.net, where we keep the tape rolling and continue discussing all things LIBOR. You can find that wherever finer podcasts are sold, SoundCloud, Overcast, Apple iTunes, and of course, bloomberg.com. You can check out my daily column on bloombergview.com. Follow me on Twitter at Ritholtz. I'm Barry Ritholtz. You're listening to Masters in Business on Bloomberg Radio.
0: The countdown has begun. From May 14th to 16th, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Carter Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections, gain unique insights and uncover valuable opportunities in one of the world's most rapidly rising regions. Request your invite for this exclusive event at Qatar Economic Forum.com.
1: Welcome to the podcast, David. Thank you so much for doing this. I, I, I found I'm, I'm only halfway through the book but I found it to be absolutely fascinating and it unfolds like a spy novel it's it's really amazing characters and all these things going on and you're kind of astonished along the way that wait can they really do that that (laughs) that seems like that doesn't make any sense how much fun was this to research and
2: write so much fun! It was uh, it was the most fun I've ever had as a journalist. Honestly, I, I found really? I found getting to know these characters fascinating. I found the historical research fascinating. I actually really enjoyed the writing part too. I, I felt like I got uh, it was a peaceful, uh, creative process for me, and uh, I just was happy as a clam.
1: So you you get to know the uh, the Hayes family. Yep. You spend almost a year with them? Uh, talking More than to that, them? Yeah. More in than a, a year. The,
2: from two, early 2013 through middle of 2015, so in close to two and a half years.
1: Are you surprised that he's the only person who ended up going to jail for this?
2: I'm, on the one hand, surprised because that doesn't seem right or fair. There were a few other people who got very small jail sentences, not not part of his ring, but part, other people at other banks that were... Uh, engaged in kind of similar behavior but the jail sentences were in tiny fractions of what he received on the other hand though I'm not that surprised and one of the things that I think has fueled the current populist move and certainly fueled the rises of Bernie Sanders and Donald Trump in 2016 is the sense that Wall Street got away with murder and no one was held no no individuals were held accountable while so many people in the public lost their jobs or their homes or their mm-hmm. savings as a result of this. And I think there's that, that feeling that's been out there since the financial crisis that's, it, it, it lends itself to demagoguery and it's often oversimplified and not very nuanced, but there's a big kernel of truth that behind that. And Dra-
1: drain the swamp is an effective slogan.
2: Drain the swamp's an effective slogan and the, the fear that Wall Street is taking advantage, that people are – everyone is in the pocket of Wall Street, whether it's politicians or prosecutors. That's Again, it's not that simple, but there is some truth to that. And there's no – to me, there's no more powerful manifestation of that than looking at the almost uniformly low-level, slightly dysfunctional, almost autistic guys who <laughs> bear the brunt of – of uh the criminal accountability for actions committed during the financial crisis it's not just Hayes. and there's people involved in london whale that are kind of like a little on the spectrum i don't know them but that's just the sense i get the guy who's been account- held accountable for the flash crash in 2010 is a guy who is like a little bit on the spectrum there's this is a pattern uh-huh so
1: what was the most shocking thing you discovered while you were researching this
2: uh, to me, the it was not, this is not something that's going to make a sexy headline, but it was really the degree to which culture at banks matters mm. and has real-world impacts. As, as someone who had been covering the banking industry in the U.S. and the U.K. for many years, I'd kind of dismissed as hogwash this notion of culture that consultants and banking executives pay lip service to. But I actually realized that it's true. I and mean, there's the culture at the institutions where Tom Hayes worked was one where envelope pushing was not just acceptable, but it was explicitly encouraged. Explicitly
1: and encouraged. Explicitly
2: encouraged. And the senior executives at, at a number of these institutions, not just where Hayes worked, but across the industry, were doing things not just with their trading, but also just with their social lives, doing things that are mm-hmm. just out of control, drinking, womanizing, drugs, things like that, that we... that. You can't help but look at the behavior of a top executive as, a, as an underling in an organization and take a cue from that person. If that person is doing stuff that is just nuts, you're going to get the message that it's okay to be nuts. So so you can
1: identify a distinct cultural difference from bank to bank, executive to executive, uh, even if not pushing the envelope means our profit level is going to be a little less. that That works its way through the entire troops.
2: Absolutely and I think that's we were talking earlier about how some some of the banks that have survived weathered crises pretty well are the like and JP Morgan's a good example and it's an enormously profitable institution it's made many many mistakes of course but that's an institution where it's okay to leave some money on the table sometimes right. you,
1: but they know they don't seem to make existential mistakes like like Lehman did like Bear did like Citibank they're, apparently the, the, did the
2: list of banks that have made existential mistakes is much longer than the list of banks that have it and i I can't really i really can't think i mean not all of them not all of the mistakes became existential because thanks largely to the taxpayers but there was i mean i it's it's really hard for me to think of a bank that really managed risks well and would have been fine without government intervention and that's that's Again, there's a lot of external circumstances at play, and there's l- good luck and bad luck. But the reality is these banks were, financial institutions in general, were responding to, pre- again, incentives uh-huh. from shareholders to and uh, the analyst community to amp up profits as quickly as possible, quarter after quarter. And the best way to do that is to take more risks. And that works really well until it doesn't.
1: <laughs> so before I get to my favorite questions, I, I have to ask you a little bit about... Um, your writing process, because it really is kind of fascinating. H- how did you find your way to the Wall Street Journal? That was back in 07 before the crisis. Is yep.
2: that right? It was. I started at the Journal the uh, in December of 2007. So the crisis was kind. Right of, as the
1: recession was starting.
2: Yeah. Right as I and mean, that was right. I started right after Chuck Prince and Stan o'neill lost their jobs at Merrill mm-hmm. and Citigroup, and. Uh, uh, I'd been working at Dow Jones Newswires, which is... Uh, Owned at the by time, the same parent yes, company. Yeah, same, same parent company for a few years in Washington mm-hmm. and in New York. And prior to that, had been doing other journalism. So. And,
1: and you were in Washington covering not banks. What were you covering in D.C.? I was covering
2: politics. I, I, my first job out of college was working for this little wire service there was kind of a Washington D.C. bureau for a bunch of regional newspapers. So mm-hmm. I was I was covering D.C. for a newspaper in Wisconsin, one in Amarillo, Texas, where they, which is home to uh, the manufacturer of the V twenty two Osprey. You know those planes—the yeah, ones that and, don't fly. At the time, they were. This is in the early 2000s. They were. They kept crashing. They kept inviting me to go down there and ride on one. And I right. They were, no. No. Thought they were crazy. Uh, they fly now. You see them around. Actually, uh, you do. Uh, in the UK, uses them all the time. There, you'd I see didn't know them that. flying around London. Uh, I
1: they, they were really considered a wildly overpriced boondoggle,
2: weren't yeah. they? I don't remember the price. I just remember the fact that they kept crashing. They weren't safe at all. Right. They would like crash. Unsafe at any price. They would I crash guess. like 10% of the time. That's yeah, not That's, a, that's, a that's a not bad. a good ratio.
1: That's a bad number. So so you find your way to the journal. You stop covering politics. Do you
2: immediately start covering banks? How, how did that work? Yeah, well, I started covering finance at Dow Jones, mm-hmm. uh, at Newswires. And I had no idea. I had fallen asleep for most of my econ classes in college. Right. I had you no didn't finance experience. <laughs> uh, but my first job at Dow Jones was actually, uh, my m- primary goal was to, I had to read all these SEC filings. And so oh. I kind of taught myself... What a balance sheet is, what an income statement is, how companies make disclosures, and that proved to be a really useful skill. Um, and I learned a lot about the industries, but more important, I learned how to do research, which is kind of the lifeblood of any good business reporter.
1: So you're covering Tom Hayes for the Journal. You're you're one of uh, five. You know, you're one of the journalists responsible for the five-part series that led to the Loeb Award. What made you say,
2: um, let's turn this into a book? It was, you know what it was? It was that in that five-part series, and that was, I don't know, it's like seven or 8,000 words, which is really long mm-hmm. by newspaper journalist standards, sure. by any journalist standards. And I looked at what I had as I wrote that, and there was just, I had so much more material. And I felt mm-hmm. like I was having to really leave so much on the cutting room floor. And that was, uh, the narrative in that story, to me, and I think a lot of readers as well, was really powerful. And it, it was putting a human face on someone who had been caricatured as a villain and and it you know it turns out we all have a lot in common and you know once you get to know someone you can really relate to them more and to me that was this is great character a great narrative arc and a great opportunity to bring some of this finance stuff to a mass audience because the finance industry over the past 20 years has done a really good job of kind of cloaking itself in opacity and making it seem like the stuff they're doing is so complicated and so important that no mere mortal can actually understand it. And you know what? That's nonsense. That, There's, by the way,
1: that is a uh, feature, not a bug. When things I, are absolutely. simple and transparent, you can't charge big fat fees. That, for no, it.
2: That, that's completely right. They they have thrived on this lack of transparency and this kind of the mystification of the banking industry. They've thrived on it, and that drives me crazy. And it, so it, to me, this was how do you get people to actually read a book about finance? Well, one way is to make it read like. A spy, mis- a, a spy mystery and, and it does and and that's gratifying because that was the goal and at the same time you can get people to eat some of their like carrots and spinach uh, sneak it in when they're yeah, not sneak it in. and i feel like there's i <laughs> use my parents who uh don't know a tremendous amount about finance as kind of guinea pigs and uh that was a laborious Process that might not have been great for my relationship with my parents. But. It's so
1: funny you say that. My, my wife is an art teacher. My mother is a real estate agent. And when I'm trying to explain anything in finance, if I can get, if I could create an explanation that both of them easily get, yeah, I you're, know you're in business. I know I understand it, yep. and I know I can explain. That, it.
2: that was one of the interesting things for me is that that act of trying to explain things either trying to write them in really simple terms or explain them to human beings like my book editor for example right. the act of doing that i, I had at this point co- been covering banks for since like 2004 i think so this was more than a decade and uh thought i i did know the industry quite well but the act of trying to explain to someone what an interest rate swap is what a derivative is what does a bank actually do that that was a sobering moment for me because i realized that as well as I knew this industry and as many you know hundreds if not thousands of stories had written about it, I it was very hard to explain these things, the, the, and I, I don't think I understood them fully. So I was
1: going to say the old line is: if you really want to understand something, teach it, because yeah. if you could teach it, then you really you really get
2: it. So I, I found myself in writing this book. There's a section on what a derivative is and what an interest rate swap is, and I I, I remember sitting down to write writing it, sitting down to write it, and I realized I was writing just nonsense. It was gibberish, <laughs> and it was a very obvious reflection of my lack of nuanced understanding of it. So I had to go back, and I found a bunch of professors who had were former traders who, who kind of walked me through it, and I just read a lot and arrived at a point where I, I did understand. And honestly, a lot of this stuff is not that complicated when you boil it down to its essence. It's that Wall Street does a very good job of... Make, cloaking everything in a- acronyms and jargon and, you know, just doubling the complexity for the sake of complexity itself.
1: So August 2017, you leave the Wall Street Journal, you go to the New York Times. What motivated that change and and what is it like working
2: at the Grey Lady? Um, what motivated that change is I'd been at the Journal for a long time. I love the decade, Wall Street Journal, right? You were there yeah, for a solid it, decade. and I'd been there for at the Journal for a decade. And if you count my time at Dow Jones before that, it was closer to fifteen.
1: And years. that was a that was a um, decade where a lot of stuff was happening.
2: Yeah, it. I mean, a lot of stuff externally. It was the entire financial crisis. A lot of stuff internally. Murdoch bought the place. And look, I love the Wall Street Journal. They day in and day out, do great stuff. In fact, this is, may or may not be a coincidence, but since I left, they've just been on this tear. Mm-hmm. One awesome scoop after another. So I'm not sure if that's because I left or despite me. Having <laughs> it, left. But it, there's, but the correlation
1: was, does not equal causation. We like to
2: say. I hope not. The Times is great. Uh, we are um, in the midst of trying to kind of expand and revitalize our business and finance. What coverage. do you cover there? So I'm the finance editor. So I run mm-hmm. a team of, of I think nine or ten reporters, and we're hiring. Mm-hmm. Uh, so everything from Banking and Wall Street and markets to um, the insurance business, public pensions, um, the whole range of everything. So it's fun. It's busy. It's, uh, you know, this is, I think we might be entering a new turbulent era. So there'll be lots more to write about. So let's get to my
1: favorite questions. I ask these of all my guests. Tell me the most important thing that people don't know about you.
2: I have been bald <laughs> since I was 15 years old.
1: 15? Mike, yeah. you hear that? So my head of research a couple of years ago, and he's early 30s, just said, the hell with it. I'm just going to start shaving. Well, that's smart. He, he gave and, up on it. Shave it, as early
2: as, uh, and often as you can. There's nothing But worse.
1: 15. 15 is, yeah, so what was awful. that
2: like in high school? I can't, the words, I'd get bleeped out. It's awful. <laughs> Are you kidding me?
1: So not, and and you were just at the edge of the Michael Jordan era, so you wanted to be like Mike or it, you just said <laughs> No oh, man I'm I, done. this
2: is there is well, I yeah, I shaved my head, but that was not because I wanted to be like Mike. That was because I was going bald as like, a junior S- in high school. <laughs> wow, that's amazing. Um <laughs> who
1: were some of your early mentors? Who influenced your uh, research and writing styles?
2: Um my dad certainly did. He's a professor and uh mm-hmm. does he uh, teach and what does he teach? He teaches law at Northeastern University mm-hmm. in Boston. Um, my, and my mom actually was a mentor and not in terms of writing, but in terms of, she's a psychologist. And I found that the, one of the most important things about being a successful journalist is an ability to get people to talk to you. People mm-hmm. who often aren't supposed to talk to you, get them to think that it's in their best interest to do so. And the best way to do that is to kind of understand where they're coming from and show empathy and listen well. And those are traits that my mom really taught me, but- and uh, there's throughout college uh, I said a number of great professors who taught me that you know don't use adverbs, don't write passive sentences, use action verbs, things like that. Don't um, you, okay, Don't use adverbs. No passive action words, short sentences, direct. use you know don't use a three syllable word when a one syllable word will do. There's uh, what's a
1: one syllable word for syllable? beat oh i like that very good um tell us the journalists who influence the way you approach covering a
2: topic um the kind of great inspirations in for me at least in business journalism are this is not gonna surprise you i mean michael lewis is one of the greats uh nobody
1: uh, focuses on characters in finance the way he
2: does absolutely uh he's easily the best there is at that and it's just inspiring Mm -hmm. and to me actually my favorite writing of his is actually not in the finance space and moneyball is a book that i'm a huge baseball fan and changed the way i watch baseball and think about baseball which is saying a lot because i at that point i can't remember when that came out early 2000s probably Mm -hmm. and uh i at that point spent my entire life obsessing over the boston red sox and to then see to view it through this entirely different prism. It's something really exceptionally powerful. And that's essentially a book about stats.
1: Right. Like, I was gonna I was gonna push back and say it shares a tremendous amount with the rise of quants and finance yeah. and the rise in quants. It's oh we have computers and we understand math. Here's how to make the segment uh, better. Absolutely. It just doesn't matter which the subject is. Uh, And he does a masterful job. Have you ever read The the Blind Side of his? Yeah, I love The Blind Side as well. It's actually his funniest book, I think. It's just laugh-out-loud segments, and it's obviously a very personal book without spoiling any of it for anyone. Um, Since we're talking about books... Well, before we talk about books, anyone else in the media you want to reference? Besides yeah, there are
2: two others. One is Jim Stewart, who is now a columnist. Den of, of Thieves? Den of Thieves. Wow. I, Den of Thieves and like a zillion other books. Right, he's, but that was the one that really that was, was the, uh, I remember that monster. Yeah, that, that was an amazing book, and he's. I'm really proud. That's one of, my, one of the many great things about working at The Times these days, is he's a colleague of mine, mm-hmm. and so I get to bounce ideas off him. And that's great. And sometimes the same with me, and that's very exciting. And the one other person I'll mention is not a journalist. Is but it used to be is Kerrick Mullenkamp who is uh, the guy who when he was a Wall Street Journal reporter, uh, basically uncovered the Libor scandal. And oh, really? Not like he uncovered like there was an investigation going on, but he did the number crunching and the analysis and something the wrong, sourcing yeah. to in yeah blew the whistle on it essentially. And that to me is the most profound example I've seen in business journalism in a really long time of a newspaper story or a, a news story. Changing the world. Wow. So, l- since we mentioned
1: uh, Moneyball, what are some of your favorite books? Finance, non finance, fiction, non fiction. What, what do you really like?
2: Um, I really like the business genre, actually. And there's, we've mentioned Michael Lewis, we've mentioned Den of Thieves by Jim Stewart, When Genius Failed by Roger Lowenstein. Mm-hmm is uh is a great one. The, that's a great read. I, I love the that thing book. I like about I like books that have a narrative arc, so whether that's fiction or nonfiction. And uh-huh. um to me that's it's really I mean I got I have no idea how to write a write a novel. But there's in in and I think that's a lot of ways harder than writing nonfiction, but nonfiction doing it in a compelling way. I mean I've done this once and I, it's hard. And it is hard. <laughs> it, it's really hard. And f- being able to find characters and get them to open up to you and being able to tell their stories in a way that not only engages readers but is also honest and it really reflects what's going on in a non-superficial way. That's hard, and it's so powerful when you can get it right.
1: Give us one more.
2: An- another recent one is I'm going to butcher her name, but Sheila from the New Yorker, her book Black Edge on Stevie. Oh, Cohen sure, is a, is a great one.
1: Yeah, um, that that's a really interesting title. All right, let's uh, let's talk a bit about financial journalism. What excites you right now that's going on in the world of financial media?
2: We're just finding new ways to tell stories. I mean, the notion of a story as something with a lead and a nut graph and uh, just all sorts of garbage in the middle that Mm. runs 800 to 1,200 words, that's gone. I mean, it's not gone. It needs to be gone. It's going away. And we're trying to... And again, the, the New York Times is not at all alone this. The Journal's doing this. Bloomberg does this. Everyone's doing this. But trying to find creative ways to engage readers who are increasingly reading everything on their phone is hard and really disruptive, but it's actually a lot of fun. And you can be uh, at the big media organizations that are investing a lot in hiring really talented people that are not just writers, but are also graphics people or computer programmers or audio people or video people. And doing clever, creative stuff is this whole new world that is not what I grew up in. And as long as you have tolerance for experimentation and occasional failure, it's a lot of fun.
1: The, so let's go down the list of these big, interactive, digital stories. The New York Times, The Wall Street Journal, Bloomberg, Washington Post. There have been some amazing things and if that's the future of journalism, you have to be encouraged, right?
2: Yeah, I think the future of journalism is really bright right now. I mean, there's uh look, what doesn't work is giving away uh commoditized content for free. Right. That's like that's Clearly. not a business model. So, but I think everyone gets that at this point. There's not there's plenty of commoditized stuff out there. That will be free, but that's not a business model that is— that's not Sustainable. Yeah, Well, anyway. it just doesn't generate revenue, right? No, I don't want—I'm not going to pay for that. Are you? Probably not. Like, you need to produce— I
1: pay for the New York Times, the Washington Post, the Wall Street Journal, the Financial Times, and a handful of magazines like the New Yorker and the yeah. Atlantic, but it's high-quality, expensive content.
2: And I, I think that's something—I mean, I think that's probably much more media— than the average person is going to consume. Mm-hmm. But there's I think people do in this day and age like I think there's the the notion of fake news has resonated a lot and people are they want to know what's really going on in the world. These are like dangerous times regardless of your ideology and people are willing to pay. And it's not just news by the way. And sports coverage is going through this renaissance where there's all these kind of localized business or localized business models that are popping up all over the country where people that's something people really care about. I care about that. And I, I, I subscribe to the Boston Globe for the sole reason that I want their sports coverage. And that's something that that's very valuable to me. And I think a lot of people, you just need to do things that are valuable and not commoditized. And people will pay for it.
1: Tell us about a time you failed and what you learned from the experience.
2: Man, I fail almost every day at something. Really? Yeah. Don't. I mean, I make mistakes all the time. There's... Uh, seriously i I make decisions that turn out not to be very good i uh i mean i have two little kids also so that is just a huge recipe for one failure after another as a new parent that's uh you know i i I do it all the time I, i think the key is to just be able to you know own your mistake and move on all right that makes
1: a lot of sense to me what do you do for fun what do you do out of the office to kick back relax
2: Stay physically or mentally sharp? <laughs> uh, I have two little kids, so I play with them. Mm-hmm. I take them outside. I ride a bike. I read a lot. Listen to music. Mm-hmm. Go on vacation. I love to travel. Um, yeah, I just was down in Georgia, which I've never been to. And as uh, st- Work or vacation? Uh, vacation. Where'd you stay in Georgia? We were in Savannah and then Jekyll Island. Uh, oh, lovely places. Jekyll Island is where the Fed, the idea of the Fed. Creature from Jekyll Island. Yeah, it's exactly. a very, uh,
1: very favorite, famous book. Yep. Um, if a millennial came to you and said they were thinking about a career in journalism or writing, what sort of advice would you give them?
2: Develop a skill that sets you apart, whether that is being really good at getting people to talk to you or being really good at writing or learning some uh, some element of computer programming or developing expertise in audio or video stuff, don't go the route of just aiming to be at the Wall Street Journal or the New York Times. Go develop some specialization. And our final question, uh, tell us what you wish
1: you knew about the world of banking and finance and LIBOR 15 years ago.
2: I wish someone had told me that everyone is going to try and make it seem much more complicated than it really is. But when you boil it down to the essence it's pretty understandable for someone with a brain.
1: Uh, that's as good an answer as, I, as I've ever heard. We have been speaking with David Enrich of the New York Times. If you enjoy this conversation, be sure and look up an inch or down an inch on Apple iTunes, and you could see any of the other 193 or so such conversations we've had previously. We love your comments, feedback, and suggestions. Write to us at M-I-B podcast at Bloomberg.net. I would be remiss if I did not thank my crack staff who helped put together the show every week. Medita Parwana is our producer slash audio engineer. Taylor Riggs is our booker slash producer. Michael Batnick, bald since late 20s, not quite quite 15. That's nothing. nothing. So he had 12 good years on you. um, Is our head of research who helps me assemble... Uh, a lot of the details and questions, and really makes these shows uh, what they are. I'm Barry Ritholtz. You're listening to Masters in Business on Bloomberg Radio.